0: always remembered the excitement of putting down a beautiful plate and especially when you're serving every customer virtually walked in the door or touching every table that that was seated in the restaurant that lunch or dinner was when you saw the face on people before the meal and
1: after the meal, it's that self-satisfaction and that's, you never lose that. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. It's been a period of change. Of trauma, of letting go, of taking risks, of heading down new paths and finding a better world, the restaurant industry has been forced into adaption, evolution, and change like no other time in history. Some have gone in directions they had never conceived, or taken opportunities they never thought would present themselves. Amongst the madness, there have been some amazing stories of change and success too. Rob Rubis is the owner of Manta Restaurant, Molo Bar, and Fisherman's Wharf Seafood. Rob, how are you going?
0: Well, I can only say stress would be an understatement in these times, and I'm sure there's plenty of people experiencing that at the moment.
1: Uh, not that long ago, a year and a half ago, around when the pandemic started, you ventured sort of away from restaurants a little bit and into a f- uh, Fisherman's Co-op. Was that something you had, you had planned, or is it... Um, Did that come out of these circumstances?
0: Oh, it was a combination. I think um, inevitably vertical integration was the goal to find um, every restaurateur's dream, which they talk about um, paddock to plate. Well, this was trawler to plate on the day. And I think um, Manta is obviously a a seafood restaurant and that's what we sort of stand out our, um, our golden star on, and it's um, it, the goal was to try and get a better a better product on the plate, as good as it gets. I don't think there's anywhere too many places in Australia where you'd you'd be able to say that this came off the trawler this morning, and it's basically on your plate in one form or other that night, or even that lunch. And the goal was to, to um, yeah, create that that uh, produce as good as I can get it.
1: There are many facets to running restaurants, and you've had many over your career, but how, how different is it? working with a fisherman's co-op compared to restaurants?
0: Uh, oh, well, it's, it's uh, <laughs> there's a lot of difference. A lot of things I've learned too, and God, I've been doing this for 39 years and uh, amongst 38-odd restaurants, but it's, it's more the case that you've cut out, A, you've cut out a number of middlemen, B, you're dealing directly with the trawler owner and also the co-op. Uh, they simply facilitate a storage facility and take a small percentage where the trawlers come into, but it's at the back door of the business, so you're really dealing right with the, straight off the water. They'll, they'll actually phone you as they're coming in out of, from um, you know on an overnight run. They'll give you a call an hour or two before they dock so you'll know exactly what they've got. And that's um, that's just a godsend.
1: How different has that changed the offering of Manta and the sort of seafood that you um, can put on the menu?
0: I think, Anthony, uh, the main thing is this, I don't think anyone in Sydney is really doing it as... Yeah, well, if they are, it's, it couldn't be much fresher, but it's created something that I think even a lot of our customers have certainly um, noticed in the last you know, 18 months. They've just said, gosh, it's, it, it is. It's, it's literally a case of as fresh as you can get it, literally, unless you caught it yourself. And uh, I think that's what we've tried to achieve. Yeah, and that's, that's, a, that's a big thing. And I, it, it, it's being noticed. Uh, you can really, you know, um, pick it up through the customers and so forth. That's what we're doing. I mean, it's, the problem you've got is that trawlers can sometimes bring in different things. So consistency is always a, a little bit of a drama. And, and if you, the, industry, the industry sort of thrives on consistency. But you may, if, if therefore you may have a fish that could be up to seven days, a large fish that could be up to six, seven days old through a wholesaler and uh, they're trying to keep a consistent supply and, and they'll maintain a backup. But this is a case of saying what you've got that morning is on your plate that lunch or dinner.
1: There's some amazing waters off the coast of New South Wales and fisheries there. Is there any sort of standout seafood of that region that um, you have access to? Well, I think
0: the the main area of Port Stephens is it's, its proximity to the continental shelf where the closest. And I think that's why you get that variety of fish from the from the longliners, which is everything from the, the big tunas, um, kingfish, mahi-mahi, um those sorts of that style of fish through to the more of the sort of the shallower water bottom fish like snapper uh, flathead, um, some mack- mackerel um, those sorts of things and, and of course famous for their sand whiting up here the, which is which is incredible and that's a that's sort of there from there you get some other varieties but they're your mainstay in this area uh, and naturally we've got some prawns and, and incredible lobsters. Uh, the Port Stevens lobsters are phenomenal which we have a live tank here and a live tank in Manta. So they come straight off the trawler, straight to the tank.
1: (laughs) You've uh, had many amazing restaurants of influence over the years, but take us back to when you were young. What was food like growing up? I was actually talking to one of my chefs about that the other day because I did my apprenticeship long, long, long ago
0: in the 70s, late 70s, and then went off and did to keep my father happy, a law degree, and then... uh... (laughs) And a mate of mine was opening a restaurant in Brisbane in uh, in 1983, and uh, basically his uh, his new wife didn't want him to do it. Now I know why, because I did it, and uh, <laughs> it's a labour of love. But uh, <clears throat> the industry in those days changed has changed since those days uh, dramatically, and. I think um, then it was a case of you just you did everything you could to make sure a meal was what it was, but the the palate was different, particularly in Queensland where it was all about the size of the meal rather than anything else. And uh, I think I, I learned a lot of lessons by actually I, I drove down to Sydney after being open for about seven months and, and, and bumped into a or went and saw a number of quite um, prominent people, and one was Neil Perry when he was working at North Bondi. Um, I think all back in the early '80s, '80 would have been '83, and uh, and Mark Armstrong and a, well, a few other people down here that went and saw, and uh, and basically they just said, um, you know, keep it simple. That's when I to started to change and look at how I actually can uh, create a pro- something that's a little different uh, rather than a piece of whether it be a piece of meat or a piece of fish, but just add something to it, whether it be a jus, whether it be the presentation of it, how you look at the plates and all those sorts of things. So it was a bit of an evolution process that started quite quickly and I was pretty lucky then. Then we started to sort of pick up our our act in terms of winning rewards and things like that. And and that first restaurant, I think I had three or four years of three chef's hats in a row of um, incredible... Sort of, you know, accolades, which was fantastic, and a very good team to work with. It, but it was a, it was an incredibly steep, hard learning process, um, sort of time, and, and it really was all about just long hours and and do whatever you can for the customer. <laughs> That's
1: ultimately what it boils down to. Take us back to that time in Brisbane. I mean, what sort of food were you cooking, and 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 how quickly did that change for you?
0: Um, the food, then we were still we we, we were probably doing a bit more. On um, long classical lines, I mean whether a, a steak would have a, a reduction on it with it, a red wine reduction, a classic red wine reduction with maybe a, a duck stock or something thrown in, and a fish would have a cream sauce generally with it of some description with lemon and, and, and a fish stock but you 'd be spending a lot more time on making the stocks in those days there was There was a bit more discipline, I think in, in the way. Uh, we, we did things I think as time went on and obviously numbers grew in restaurants and so forth there was a, a different philosophy of how you do things and how you create flavors and tastes in those days I think it was just one or two strong flavors on the dish whereas now you could have a multiplicity of flavors but ultimately about the produce but um, I think then it was there was a bit more of a of the uh, foundation I suppose or one of a better term I mean the basis the, the, the basics never change. But I think it's it's how you apply the basics that change and everyone now tries different things in so many different ways. Whereas in the old days we're probably the old days in the eighties and, and, and late seventies it was it was more along the classical lines that you were taught or you read from a generally from a French cookbook. What what triggered your move to Sydney? Oh, I think it, Sydney was the sort of hub of, uh, of what you could do in restaurants and, and, and numbers. It was a numbers game always, and I think Sydney had you know, incredible restaurants, had an opportunity to do things. I, I had a bit of work with Ridges Hotels, consultancy work, um, just prior to the Olympics, and uh, the goal there was to sort of see what the Sydney market was like and what I could, what I could do with it. And, and uh, we did, I got more involved on the catering side with Ridges. We built a, a catering arm to the company. And uh, I helped do that. And, and then from there, it sort of continued into a, uh, an offer from a, a couple of gentlemen that owned a small boutique catering company called Truffle Group. And uh, and basically, that the story there goes, they asked me to help me write three tenders. And one was the Sydney Opera House, the catering for that. The other one was Fox Studios. And the other one was the Stock Exchange. And, uh, and they said, how much do you want to get paid? And I said, tell you what, if we win all three tenders, I want a third of the company. And that's where it started. <laughs> and we won all three tenters. And that's where, it, basically that's where it started. That's where the Sydney journey started uh, in, a, in a more effectual way, a business way.
1: And take us back to that time. What was it like managing all of a sudden those three sites are all very different? Um, what were the food offerings and experiences that you were delivering?
0: Oh, those were different days because it was predominantly about catering. We, we did have the – the company had a restaurant which um, the two boy, two gentlemen, Tom Rutherford and um, Chris James, put together called Liquidity. And uh was Elbe there and it was it was just early days after the Olympics. And, and that was, I think, quite frana- frantic times. The frantic times came when we won the Opera House and Fox Studios because they're big numbers. and uh, And we were three – Sort of lads that didn't have a lot, a lot of a lot of capital to do what we needed to do, but we, we certainly had a lot of enthusiasm and and, and the, the goal then was to just you know build it up as fast as we could and uh, see what we could get out of it. But the the offering then we 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 were sort of applied, and I think Tom was very um, instrumental in this. You know, a, a restaurant style product to large numbers, and uh, the three of us together sort of worked. Closely to try and make that happen, particularly in the Opera House, when you're doing weddings of up to a thousand people plus, and uh, I think you've got to produce a product that um, that people accepted was going to be of a restaurant quality product, even in those large numbers. So uh, that was that were the disciplines you had to employ in all, particularly in those days when I think there weren't many boutique catering companies doing that sort of product for large numbers, and that's where we
1: sort of kicked it off from. A thousand guests is a lot of people to feed for an event. Do you have any stories or events or moments that really stand out you can tell us about?
0: Yeah, the first night in the Opera House, um, the, the, and I actually it was we were all there and we were cooking for it It wasn't quite a thousand people, but it was a few hundred people, and we had the ovens in the main in the, one of the wings, and of course that was against the rules, and I and uh, if I remember rightly, one of the ovens caught fire in the Opera House. We didn't endear us very closely to. Uh, to the opera house uh, administration at the time, and because uh, they, they were in shock, to be honest. But <laughs> we, we we were we were the attitude, to just get the job done, and uh, a few things happened along the way. But that that was probably that was the very first that was the very first function we did in the opera house. Wow, it had drama written all over it, so that's uh, how we kicked it off. <laughs> Much to the dismay of the CEO of the opera house and all their management team, and,
1: you know, normal things. <laughs> You briefly mentioned liquidity restaurant, um, which was awarded a a hat. Um, Tell us us, us about that establishment and how in was what you did uh, moving forward?
0: Oh, again, it was just a good team in there. Had a very good. uh, base good kitchen team and I think we worked very hard at at a service standard it was a unique restaurant in its presentation Um, I think it it was a terrific spot a little tucked away in a sense it's so close to the city and it was so forgotten about the cab driver didn't know where it was but uh, it it had something unique about it I think at the time we we just produced a product that luckily enough we won a hat for and and it certainly had a few good years and uh, I think that whole super yacht area was forging ahead so it, it was just good timing and it was i think a, a lot of dedication to and back to my roots of a restaurant uh, and i enjoyed it very much
1: and that was sort of getting that was in essence my first restaurant in sydney you mentioned uh, the importance of french technique early on in your career but you know in sydney you revived that french um classic restaurant in crow's nest La lard how, how did that come about we were building
0: we basically wanted to just keep building the company and I think the goal there was we had um, a number of outlets and Lagriard came up and it was again the owner did a bit of a tender process and and we put our best foot forward and I put a bit of stories forward as to the background and obviously once some uh, you know, an operator that could survive in in an area that probably wasn't known culinary for its um, you know how it does things but Lagriard was an established good restaurant that we sort of basically applied what what I believed was the right thing to do and 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 just keep it going in the way it, it was and and add to it just something of you know all the things we can do and particularly in the produce side of things and and uh, and we kept it ticking away for quite a while it was just uh I think the, the, having a number of outlets just got a little more difficult uh, as you grow through that early, you know, from a small business to a medium-sized business gets very hard, and, and you can lose your identity a little bit. So the goal was to out the way it was, and, and it was hard. It was always never an easy process because the small, intense restaurants require a lot of application.
1: You mentioned about trying to hold on to identity there. There's a lot of operators that um, dream of multiple venues and a lot of them trying to do that. What sort of advice do you have for operators looking to expand and, and maintaining that identity?
0: Oh, I think the goal is, is you're only as good as the team around you. You need some seriously strong people who have a very good idea how to run multiple venues. I think that's really where it's all at. And, and also, information feed. You really need to know what's happening in your venue every day. You really need to understand your staff incredibly well. You need to communicate with them. You need to sit and talk to them. You need to have a proper chain of um, management that everyone can assist each other with. And it's, it's a hard, and particularly when you've got a high-labour content operation, which restaurants are, and you have a multiple number of outlets, it can go wrong very quickly. (laughs) And you really need that vertical communication and you need information and you
1: need to keep your thumb on it constantly. It's a daily thing. Sydney's Woolloomooloo Wharf is uh, renowned as a destination with uh, many um, great restaurants along it. Um, what what lured you to uh, manta and seafood restaurant
0: um interestingly it was the time we we just uh, <laughs> extracted ourselves from a, a a private equity structured deal which included the uh the opera house and Centrepoint tower and um, a number of and the big catering company and so forth we had a dream of building up this massive animal uh, into a micro float and so forth when and obviously the gfc brought that to a halt Uh, And we sort of pulled ourselves out of it. And the opportunity was, I thought, we'll we'll go back to what we do best. And actually, we had um, Nielsen Park. And I wanted to get something that sort of can go with that. And Manta came up for a a purchase. Uh, And and we battled with a few other people. And we looked at a few other sites, actually. We looked at uh, the old Hugo's Pizza site over in Manly, too, uh, on the Manly Wharf. But Manta, Manta was the, either one of those two would have been a term. You know, so Manta just happened to, happened to work at the right moment, right time. I think we were in the right place at the right moment compared to other people because it was never advertised, never talked about. A few operators were looking at it and we, I just swooped on at it and literally it occurred in a, It was about a one or two day process.
1: Wow. Mm. <laughs> What's so special about the wharf and the, and the restaurant? Uh, I think the wharf
0: is the wharf's unique. And after. Being you know owning or being involved in almost 40 restaurants in my life, I think that is one of the best spots to own a restaurant in in these days, and it's proven to be even more so under COVID. But uh, it, it has there's a uniqueness about the wharf, the view, the position on the harbour, the the. The actual restaurants themselves, the outdoor eating, um, I suppose, you know, it's certainly it's carried an eastern suburbs attitude toward it for a long time, but it it really has something that's unique, the, and you're in a combination of terrific restaurants being Otto and Chinadoll and Kingsley's and so forth. So you've got quality around you, and you've got a, a footprint that is spectacular, and I think position, position, position is one of the, you know, the key elements of what you're doing there, and your you know, atmosphere is created simply by being where you
1: are. You briefly mentioned that it's not only like an amazing destination, um, but through COVID, it's proved even more so. What what sort of impact has it had on the on the restaurant the last year and a half?
0: Oh, it's been a roller coaster, and we're back in the the bottom end of the of the roller coaster now. But <laughs> feeling my feet scraping on the bottom, but it, it's. It starts. Yeah, it went from basically famine, which was obviously the the March, April, May months of last year, June, and then July. The world turned back again. The tap came back on, and people came out like they'd never been to a restaurant in their lives, and and obviously they wanted to sit. They, they felt safer sitting outside, and seventy percent of the restaurant of the seating capacity is outside. So I think that that was uh, incredible from July through till. Oh, you know, two months ago, <laughs> and then the ro- and then and then we went back down in the down part of the roller coaster.
1: What sort of impact has it has it had on you in the last year and a half? Oh, it's stressful. It's it, having been in this industry for
0: almost forty years. It's the biggest ups and downs I've ever. Experienced um, bar making that—that's out of your hands. If—if if it's in your hands and you've made mistakes, and the restaurant hasn't or has worked or whatever, it's up to you. But in this case, it's—it's it's out of your hands, and it, it continues to be that way. And you're at the mercy of be it a government body, be it a someone else making a decision. It's not your decision. It's not what you do right or wrong. It's what someone else has done. And I know we're part of a journey all together in this, but uh, uh, in one way, certainly not financially, but in terms of medically we are. But um, it seems at this point in time in, in my business life, after all these years at my age, um, it seems there's a there's – a, how can I put it? And I use the word we're in this journey together, but we're in it in a medical terms, but we're not in it financially because it – it's just one of those things that the tourism industry, hospitality, gyms, hairdressers have been hit the hardest. Um, sadly, this time the government's not seeing that or understanding it uh, as they did last year, um, and it's different. It, it's a very different environment at the moment, um, and I think it's it's a scary environment for the industry because it's it's you've had to, and we did do the markets, we did do the deliveries, we did everything last year, and but there was. There was substance to do with government help to be able to get yourself back on your feet. As this year, you, you basically there's there's virtually nothing, and um, yet you're up. You're still in the hands of someone else.
1: <laughs> you also have a Molo Bar. What sort of impact has it had had on that? Um,
0: in the beginning, again, and, and Ricardo Burnaby is the, is a, the operator of it, and my partner's in it together, and he's a terrific. Flamboyant character that 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 runs that business uh, and does it very well. After COVID last year, it was gangbusters. Simply because it was an outdoor bar, it was done very well. Uh, it had phenomenal. It was terrific business, and and it was a real adjunct to Manta, and worked the the two of them worked very well together, and it was just fantastic. And. Um, Rick did a fantastic job. We all worked well together, and uh, it was, it was good sailing, as they say. <laughs> but naturally, like everything, you've got to keep at it. And, and I suppose this, this has again slowed us all down. And you know, all we can hope for is when we get out of it, we'll uh, we'll have that rise again. And, and I think being an outside bar, and having the atmosphere and the view it has, and, and the offer it has, which is fabulous, and, and Rick does a terrific job. It's it's just, it's unique. It's very unique. Given on the wharf and things like that.
1: What do you think is the way forward for the hospitality sector?
0: Uh, at this point in time, <laughs> it's, it's probably difficult to say. But it's still—I mean, it's a, its its one of the oldest industries. It's an—it's an industry that's been around for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. It always will be. I think the way forward is, is simply it, the actual basis of it doesn't change. It's—it's a—you work hard, you give a lot. Um, you really have to look first at, do you enjoy, you know, people have to enjoy what they do. And this is a very, very motivated industry where you need to enjoy what you do to go forward in this industry. Now, under these circumstances, it's very hard. It's, it's, it, you can't say one thing or the other. You just have to keep looking at where can I evolve? How can I evolve? You know, what can I do? Can I do, you know, it's hard for a four or five star restaurant to do takeaway and delivery because it, it doesn't work that way. Fisherman's Wharf adds that side of it. We're starting to do takeaways and deliveries up here now, and that's the goal of what we need to do in that fresh seafood and, and, and that industry. But you have to keep thinking about what other things you can do to keep evolving. But ultimately, a restaurant is about what people like in a restaurant, and that they're the things that time and mortal have never changed.
1: You've been involved in around – Forty restaurants, um, all, many of them have won, won accolades. But um, more recently, you've got a fish and fish and chipper. Um, can you tell us a bit about that? <laughs> no, it's it's just actually it's a
0: it's a bit of a learning curve after all this. But it it's a fabulous way it's a fabulous way to get a bit of vertical integration because you basically on one side of the of the business up here is all the full seafood retail with a big filleting room and. The fish comes in the back door. Back door gets all filleted and cut to pieces, and so forth. And and the nice center cuts of the fish go out to the window, and the off off cuts and the tail and the bits and all the still the good bits they'll go to the fish and chips. <laughs> and so you're just bas- you're basically utilising a lot more of, of what you're doing, and um, and it's, it's it's also turnover and oh, it's all the good things. It's it's everything you can do to make a business more efficient, and I think. You learn a lot from this. Whereas when you've got a, a what well, you've got a restaurant like Mantra or even you know, the produce in Molo, and, and we, we're using parts of of produce rather than all the produce, in this business we can actually look at it and say, how can we get the most out of all of it? We can create everything from a beautiful center cut piece of uh, filleted fish that was caught that morning, through to a lovely you know uh, battered and fried piece of fish that may be just off the tail or whatever, but it's still a beautiful piece of fish, maybe a different shape, whereas in the restaurant, you'll have to have this perfect shape, and then you can use all the other bits in a beautiful seafood chowder. So, you can just keep going and going and going with it, or a fish ball, or a fish cake, or a... <laughs> so, that's where I've learned a lot of here. <laughs> so,
1: yeah. How has owning Fishman's Wharf changed your thinking about what you might do in the future?
0: Ah, oh, yes, it's a very good question. I think in this industry, it's 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 a different way of running a business because you're not. I'm not dealing directly with the public as much. I certainly, do the marketing and so forth, but here it's you, know, you almost take it as a McDonald's philosophy. Here, you try and train your staff to be customer friendly, knowledgeable, uh, and so forth. But nor is nor is a customer coming in here expecting Manta. Molo style of service or produce. So, in terms of the future, it's just it's a nice way to use all the experience you have to create an environment where both the customer it's a simple, very easy, but good, but you know, pleasant process to come and buy a piece of fish or have some fish and chips, or for the staff to be able to know exactly what they're selling and doing at the same time, without you necessarily having to talk to a soul in terms of the, um, and their clients. And in actual fact, in these businesses, the staff can, you know, once you get the efficiency levels right, you don't need to be here as 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 much. You just need to make sure
1: it all works. After many decades of influence with many venues, what is it that you love about what you do?
0: Oh, initially, it was just the contact with the people. I mean, you've got to love people in the restaurant business. In any retail business, you love people. But I think the greatest thing I remember is actually always remembered the excitement of putting down a beautiful plate on, a, on beautiful and especially when you're serving every customer virtually walked in the door or touching every table that, that was seated in the restaurant that lunch or dinner was when you saw the face on people before the meal and after the meal. It's that self-satisfaction and that's – you never lose that. I think that's something that it's why I went into the industry because I actually just enjoyed looking after people and and seeing the enjoyment from people and and the you know this work of art when you put it down on the plate on the table especially in the restaurants and then you take it away and they say that was fabulous and there's a self self propagating satisfaction that that keeps you going and that was probably where it, that's why I, that's why it started from from walking out of a legal office and walking into a opening a restaurant.
1: You mentioned the boom that happened in the period after that lockdown in March twenty twenty, and to sort of more recently to this lockdown. How do you see um, beyond COVID? Do you think that the industry will experience quite a big boom? Oh, if I,
0: I don't believe it'll be like last year. It's different. Um, this this lockdown and these this circumstance with the new strain and so forth. There's a lot more fear in my. From what my experience in talking to customers, there's a lot more, there's a different attitude how they see things. I think, um, you know, nor is there, you know, the support is different financially, actually. And that's, I think last year, people went through a period where suddenly they're locked up, but they're not having to worry about their mortgage, not having to worry about, they're still getting paid quite well. Um, They didn't have to worry about anything. And then they came out gangbusters with a, a dollar in their pocket. I think this time there's a lot more fear, both from the COVID itself and financially. Uh, you know, you can just talking to people and getting that sense of, of what people are doing and how they're seeing it. They're seeing it very differently this time. And you know, it's 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 a terrible thing. COVID is a horrible thing, and it's how we deal with it. And we have to deal with it. And uh, I think this time it won't be the. I, it'll be solid because people will want to get out and do things. But I think it won't be, it won't be this incredible. I've never seen anything like it in July, August last year. In winter, <laughs> it was um, people just wanting to be out and spending, 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 spending. But it certainly won't um, – won't. I don't believe it'll be like that this time. It'll be steady and it'll, certainly people still want to go out. And I think we'll have to adapt to different environments and I think you know, it'll be the same slow process um, in the beginning and then I think it'll just be steady rather than this enormous sort of plateau lift that it was
1: last year. Having uh, been involved with so many great restaurants, what do you think makes a, a great restaurant and memorable dining experience?
0: Oh, it's a, my saying always saying a restaurant's a sum of a thousand parts. The most important parts are the the team, the people, with all of us together that run the operation from the kitchen hand through to the front of house, through to the chefs, through to wherever. It, it is that is the core of what. A great restaurant needs to be, and that and how that is held together is obviously through the management structure and, and how you all the way to the top, because it all happens. And I'm no, I'm only as good as the next person. So it, it, that's the critical part of a great restaurant. Uh, from there, it's how you then it's how each individual or each individual owner sees his restaurant, and normally it comes from a feeling of what he wants to sell and do and how he wants the public to see it, and uh, and that comes from the passion. And ultimately, it is it's a passionate industry, and you've got to have the passion for it. Um, It is the business and you still have to treat it like a business and so you combine the two. Hardest thing to do in the world and if you've got good people around you, it becomes the easiest thing to do
1: in the world. Well, uh, Rob, we've loved having you on Deep in the Weeds today to hear your story. Uh, Good luck with the uh, Fishman's Wharf and uh, obviously one of Australia's best seafood restaurants, uh, Manta. Uh, Please keep in touch and uh, we'll catch up again soon.
0: Thanks very much. Terrific to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you.
1: This is the Deep in the Weeds Podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Stay tuned as we take a deep dive into the lives of the incredible people who ply their trade in the food and hospitality sector. Special thanks to executive producer Rob Locke for making this all happen. Follow us on Instagram at Deep in the Weeds Podcast or email us at podcast at deepintheweeds.com.au. Stay safe and be well.